0: Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view beginning April 20th. Learn more at msmuseumart.org.
1: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.
0: Hi, I'm Sarah Storey, Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. This is the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where we interview creative people from all over the state every Sunday at 5 p.m. You can also catch episodes on our podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. This month, we're focusing on talking with our Governor Awards art recipients. So you can catch different recipients' interviews throughout the month. Today, our very special guest is Arthur Jafa. He's receiving the award for Excellence in Media Arts, which you can check out the Governor Arts Awards on television, on MPB, Friday, February nineteenth at eight pm. Arthur, welcome to the show.
1: Hey. Hello. Hello. Hello.
0: Hey. Hey, uh. (laughs) We're just so grateful to have you on the show today. Um, You have accomplished just so much in your career. Um, Most notably, your video, your 2016 video, Love is the Message. The Message is Death, received worldwide acclaim. And your White Album received the Golden Lion Award at the 2019 Venice Biennale, which is just incredible. That's one of the most prestigious arts awards. You've you've also worked with many musicians like Julia and videographers, Julie, Julie Dash, Spike Lee, Kanye West, among others. So you are also in so many different collections, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Modern Art, and the Smithsonian American Museum of Art you've had a long and amazing career and so we're just excited to talk to you today and we'd love to to start in the beginning and just hear your story of of growing up here in our state of Mississippi
1: uh <laughs> I feel like I've uh, yeah um uh, well you know I was born in Mississippi in 1960 um uh, born in Tupelo Mississippi obviously the home of Elvis Presley <laughs> uh and um um, uh, born in Tupelo, Mississippi, but actually grew up in Clarksdale. Uh, and as I have sort of mentioned, probably more, more times than once, I feel like in many ways, uh, who I am was very much shaped by bouncing back and forth between those two, um, communities or two, uh, regions of Mississippi. Uh, Clarksdale, of course, is in the Delta, it's flat. Obviously, as everybody from Mississippi knows, and uh, Tupelo, you know, is sort of like, on the, I would say it's like on the edge of hill, hill country, you know, going as you get, go a little bit more north, it gets very, very hilly. So, And they were just two very different types of environments. Um, I think my first grade class, uh, in my first year of school, first grade, I, I went to school in Tupelo. I lived with my grandparents that year. And that was the first year that they had integrated the schools in in, in Tupelo. So I have a very sort of distinct memory of uh, going to Church Street Elementary. Uh, Mrs. Trotter was my first teacher. She was lovely, really wonderful uh, lady. Um, uh, There were, I think, maybe just three, I can only remember two other black students like in that first class. That would have been myself, my cousin, Angela Young, and I think Sheila Ashby uh you know i've always i've told people before people people have this sense that like when they integrated the schools black people just couldn't wait to get you know their kids in these schools um but even at you know i think i was five at the beginning of that first year uh i remember distinctly like the adults having a lot of conversations about it, and people had you know, different opinions about it. Some people are very anxious about sending their kids to essentially what amount to white schools. Uh, I don't think I I don't think they had any black teachers at the time. But um so, you know, so I have a very sort of kind of specific memory of Mississippi. You know, it's funny, like sometimes people ask me, like, because I've actually went to school at Howard University. D.C., and I lived in New York for a long time. I live in Los Angeles now. Oftentimes, if people hear you're from Mississippi, it's like you're some sort of mythical beast or something like that. Like, you, you you actually grew up in Mississippi? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I did. I mean, you know, people actually do grow up there. It is a real place, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, and people have very sort of oftentimes... Uh, fantastical ideas about, you know, what it's like. And um, it's really interesting, like, not not necessarily disabusing people of, of those ideas, but I know, like, over the course of the last, maybe 30 years, there have been, like, several instances where I found myself in Mississippi with my friends and colleagues and stuff, and they, you know, it was a real shock to them, you know, what, what like, kind of what it was like. I worked on a commercial once for Wild Turkey Bourbon, and we shot in and around Clarksdale. And so a bunch of my friends from New York and LA actually worked on this commercial with me. And uh, I remember a very, very close friend of mine turning to me like a day. The first day we were there and saying, I just don't understand how this environment produced you. I remember her saying it. And I was like, really? Oh, huh. interesting. Uh, but then about three days in, I remember her coming up to me in the middle of the day and say, I get it. <laughs> 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 You know, so um, you know. Look, I I don't think I'm like saying anything so shocking to say that Mississippi has a troubled, you know, a troubled past for sure. Um, But it also is a place that's, you know, it's a magic, it's a kind of magical place. And I think, I mean, to a certain degree, I think when I was younger, I was very preoccupied with getting away in some ways, like getting out of there, so to speak. And I don't think they were specifically just because it was Mississippi. I think a lot of it was just, you know, growing up in a small town, you know, having dreams and fantasies of going to New York, this kind of stuff. So, so you know, a lot of it was that. But, you know, as I got older, um, you know, like even, you know, I think in my late 20s, I started to appreciate having grown up in Mississippi in, you know, a different kind of way. So it's certainly has shaped almost everything I've done, you know, my work, my art, my filmmaking, those kinds of things. Uh, Sometimes it's not so apparent to people how that is, you know, why that is. And and I think to a certain degree, a lot of the sort of talks that I've given, in a sense, are very much uh, preoccupied with trying to articulate to people how growing up in a particular place that I did sort of shaped what I do. You know? Sometimes not so apparent to people, but yeah.
0: Absolutely. Um, Mississippi is just such a unique place, and it, I, I really enjoy, like you, having friends come in from other places and just discovering what it really is. It's raw, yeah. it's different, It's and so, some of it's the same as everywhere else. Yeah. A lot of it's different than everywhere else. Um, yeah. but it's, it is sure. fascinating. I think that's something we'll all be unpacking for the rest of our lives.
1: Yeah. For
0: sure. Um, so you so growing up in Tupelo and Clark Still, what what were your influences? What were your creative influences, your outlets? How did you get into the arts as a as a young child?
1: Um uh, Well, I mean, there's being you know, I mean, the arts with a capital A, you yeah. know, is one thing and just being a creative person is something else. I mean, all of my brothers, and now we all actually are in the arts, you know, one way or another. My parents are super very creative. You know, they were, you know, teachers and stuff. So I don't remember a moment where I wasn't like drawing and things like that. I can definitely remember like in the first grade class, sitting and doing research research, and uh, I mean, doing a recess and just drawing (laughs) I mean, this is generational, but drawing spaceships and bombs and weapons, (laughs) like ray guns and stuff with uh, Bill McCoo, who I haven't seen since the first grade, I don't think. But uh, we would actually sit there and draw weapons. (laughs) Uh, So I was always like drawing and stuff like that. I think, you know, I can't remember when I wasn't reading comic books. Like in some ways, I think the first quote unquote art form that I was sort of you know, super engaged was, was definitely comics, you know, it's the mid mid to late 60s. And so it's the heyday of Marvel comics and stuff like that. So, you know, Fantastic Four, Iron Man. I mean, some of my earliest memories are uh, standing in this uh, store. It was called Ashby's store. Uh, Ashby's, uh, not a drug store, but it was a convenience store and they had a comic book rack there. So I can remember at, like probably three or four Sitting at that comic book rack and looking at comic books and stuff. I and my best friend uh, Bill Beverly, whose mom uh, Linda Beverly had grown up across the street from my mother, and they were best friends um, growing up. And so that, that I, I don't think there's a moment where I don't remember Bill. Like he was like always there. You know what I mean? So, but I remember us being like really into comics, like pretty intensely. So I think it just sort of grew out of that. You know, reading comic books. And then a little later, being really interested in movies. And, you know, at that time, the movies I was interested in were like, you know, horror films, science fiction films. I think my dad took us to see, or took me to see Planet of the Apes when I was like maybe three years old. Wow. So I remember it in the movie theaters. I also remember seeing a lot of James Bond movies. So hence maybe where the drawing weapons and stuff came from. Mm-hmm. There was a theater in Tupelo called the Lyric Theater. And I can remember very distinctly, like, mm, maybe 67, 68, maybe, being in that movie theater and looking at uh, You Only Live Twice, uh, oh. which is, uh, you know, really a great James early James Bond movie. So, um, so I, I think it just kind of grew out of that. You know, it didn't, um, I didn't really go to school to study art. I actually, well, art, yeah, I went to school to study architecture. Oh, wow so uh, and which is what I majored in in college so and then I guess like once I got to DC where Howard University is I just over the course of that four or five years I just I was always interested in films but I I, I think films wasn't something that I I thought you can do I I didn't know anybody actually made films in a way (laughs) you know like just like a car it's just something you you buy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just there, exactly. <laughs> I didn't I didn't really, early on, I didn't think of people actually sitting down and making it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, when I first became introduced to this whole idea that, you know, oh wow, you can go to school to study film and there were, you know, our tour theories and there were like directors, you know, this is, and then when Star Wars happened, I guess that's like 77, that's like right before I go off to college, and you know that was the first time I became like really aware of like a creator behind the film. Of course, that would have been George Lucas, you know. And even I remember re- reading like Rolling Stone magazine; they had Star Wars on the cover, and they were talking about George Lucas. And in the course of that, they talked about Coppola, and they talked about Steven Spielberg, and Mars says that. So those were like the first, I think, publicly sort of known like filmmakers who were college, you know what I mean? Sort of educated filmmakers, like they hadn't necessarily gone to Hollywood and worked their way up through the system or anything like that. So, um, you know, so it kinda sort of existed as like a possibility, I guess, at that point. But when I got to Howard in particular, I became in some ways very preoccupied with aesthetics. Uh, I can remember distinctly the first time I heard the word aesthetics. And this was like, uh, (laughs) I did a summer on the Youth Conservation Corps uh, on the Natchez, Natchez Trace one summer. And uh, there was a ranger who used to have conversations or do talks with us. I can't remember his name. My aunt will remember his name. He was a ranger. And I remember he was doing a talk and he used the word aesthetics. And he said, do you guys know what aesthetics is? And I didn't like, no, I don't know. He was like, well, it's sort of like the philosophy of art or expression or something. But it's becoming like, you know, if somebody said, hey, you had to reduce your life to like three words, you know, like aesthetics would definitely be one of them for me, you know. So I became like super preoccupied with not just art in the sense of making things, but like the idea behind making things. And particularly, you know, in some ways, I think getting to Howard made me appreciate or uh, made me understand what I had sort of grown up immersed in in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean as opposed to just being in the middle of culture, being in the middle of aesthetics, all of a sudden, you know, people were like, you Now sometimes joke can say the Delta particularly is like the black American Jurassic Park. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like you come out of a space and it's normalized for you because it's what you know you take it for granted. And then they have people you know have conversations about mississippi and music for mississippi and culture for mississippi in a particular kind of way i think it, it it uh yeah it definitely had a big um it had a lot to do with like how i see the world and how i've moved in the world so
0: this is sarah story the executive director of the mississippi arts commission you are listening to the podcast version of the mississippi arts hour To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, and associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11, or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sarah Storey, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. All this month, we're speaking with our Governor Arts Award recipients. And this week we get to speak with Arthur Jafa, who's receiving the award for Excellence in Media Arts. Thank you so much again for being here, Arthur. Cool. Well, we were just talking about your experience of growing up in Mississippi and then moving on to DC and Howard for college. And I just loved hearing um, your your time of reflection and just the contrast of D.C. to Mississippi and what that what your upbringing meant in this creative place and and just the contrast of anywhere else really from Mississippi. Um, Tell us a little bit more about that. Do you remember growing up, were the blues an influence? Do you remember other music in the Mississippi Delta and Tupelo that were influential?
1: Well, you know, the thing about it is like, again, like oftentimes when I talk to people, when I've spoken to people about it, particularly people not from Mississippi, you know, they have a lot of ideas. They have these sort of, I don't know, stereotypical ideas, you know, like honestly, like when I grew up, well, like in Tupelo you know, we're talking about radio, basically, like what people listen to on the radio. You know, there's a lot of Elvis Presley, and there was a lot of sort of, I don't know, country and western sort of maybe leaning, you know. Um, but when we moved to Clarksdale, it was like totally different. I mean, really? uh, yeah, because we would, most of the radio, we would, there, there was a local radio station, WROX, which just, I mean, when I even think about it, it was just a classic sort of, black kind of vibe radio station. But I think most people, like, listen to WDIA, which is, you know, famous radio station in Memphis. Like, Clarksdale is about maybe 50 miles from Memphis. So we were sort of, you know, oftentimes they say, like, the Delta starts, like uh, they say it at at... Uh, uh, what's this museum in Memphis? But they say it starts in Memphis, and then mm-hmm. it goes down. So, you know, we grew up in Shadow Memphis, in a way. So the music that I mostly remember growing up, like on the radio, was like, you know, Al Green and Rufus Thomas and stuff like that. You know, uh, Joe Picks. You know, <laughs> things like that. Which was like, you know, soul music, but definitely with a really, you know, B.B. King, kind of more like bluesy sort of, maybe, m- maybe leanings and stuff. But... But beyond that, you know, when I started to buy records and stuff, you know, you know, as a like teenager, basically, you know, initially, I think the first record I could ever remember buying was the Spinner's. <laughs> you know, it was That's a cassette, great. it was a cassette, actually. But then I very quickly became very interested in rock, like rock. I was like really interested in rock music. So the first album, like the first album I ever bought was Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, I oh, man. Of all things. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, you know, and then I was a little obsessed, I mean, coming up with like Led Zeppelin, like a lot of people, you know, my age, but like, so it was never really kind of, I listened to that, but I also listened to soul music, you know, kind of as well. Like when I got, um, you know, getting towards my singing in high school, you know, I was interested in like punk rock, it's all kinds of stuff, you know, it was the very <laughs> beginnings. I'm in mean, the first time myself like on the cover of, like, Rolling Stone magazine, like, you know, punk Rockets from London, they had safety pins in <laughs> 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 their faces and stuff like that. And I was just like, wow, this is crazy. You know what I mean? But I was I was fascinated by it, but it was, like, yeah, it was definitely crazy. But I mean, like, on one hand, also, too, you know, like, mostly anybody my age, you know, there was a moment when, like, P-Funk, like, George Clinton and P-Funk just sort of dominated everything. So, you know, Maggot Brain... And clones of Dr. Funkenstein, all that kind of stuff. I remember going with my best friend Reginald Clark in high school to see, like, you know, people like, you know, in, in Memphis. So, like, eh, yeah, you know, so I grew up, like, listening. I say, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, you know, people might have a stereotype. Oh, yeah, you grew up listening to, like, some Delta blues band with an acoustic guitar. Well, not really, because I grew up, like, looking at HBO, just, you know, like, everybody else i mean but at the same time that stuff was there i think most people had a kind of slightly negative it had a slightly negative connotation when i grew up because people associate the blues in particular with like you know like misery and broke things being kind of broken down and you know it was more like soul music and then funk you know as it got into the 70s just seemed more forward moving and forward thinking now of course as i got older you know, I realized that I had, you know, that sort of opinion of that, that, that form of black music was a sort of very immature, I mean, I mean, you know, blues is to a certain degree, like grown folks music, you know, mm-hmm. and so I I, I saw it slowly but surely start to appreciate things that in a way I took for granted, because it was always kind of there, like, for example, I was never going to put on, like, uh, a Luther Ingram record or something like that, but it was always there. You know, it was, like, always there. And um, I don't think I ever heard of Robert Johnson until I was, you know, off to school. And so I remember reading about Robert Johnson and stuff and thinking, wow, wow, this is really incredible. And it's just to have literally grown up where he was running around and where he was playing and stuff was, you know, a little bit of a big deal. I really identify with Robert Johnson. Like, he's, like, feel like a bit of a patron saint for me in terms of artists and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting growing up in a place that has such mythic overtones, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And you, you're constantly, I feel like I'm constantly trying to reconcile the sort of environment I grew up in and my, my you know, how I thought about it at one point and then like how I think about it now uh, to reconcile that with, like, you know, a kind of more, I don't want to say objective, but a more maybe empirical idea of what the environment is like, you know. And the things that happened there, because I'll about, oh, did you see X, Y, and Z? Have you ever seen men or something like that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I saw I remember them marching in Tupelo at one point, but it wasn't, in a sense, it wasn't the kind of, like if you're in a movie or something, you know, the clansmen are rolling through and you're running around. Like, we were, like, just fascinated to see them. I mean, it's a strange thing to say. It was fascinating for us because they they were like boogeymen or something that we'd heard about, but I hadn't. I mean, we were just young enough to have grown up in a moment where they actually sort of receded into the background a little bit. So I feel like, like I say, so much... uh, understanding of like where I came from is really about a kind of um a kind of duality yeah horrible in some ways but truly wonderful in other ways you know so
0: absolutely and you mentioned that you you were able to read a lot of comic books and um and that really became influential for you in your career do you want to talk a little bit about that about comic books
1: yeah (laughs) uh I mean I mean, like, comic comic books in general. You know, like everybody, Batman, which was on television when I was like six or seven or two or three years. Uh, there was a superhero thing at one moment. Like Sunday, Saturday morning cartoons were all superhero cartoons. This was just the superhero moment. You know what I mean? Like the late '60s. But it's funny. Like in in many ways, yeah, it was comics especially in the beginning, but more than anything, it was one particular person, uh, Jack Kirby, you know, mm-hmm. who's like the king. I don't, all these Stan Lee people, you know, whatever. It's, it's really all about Jack Kirby, you know? Mm-hmm. And then like, and I, and I mean, like, not even just in terms of like, like, oh, so he dominated comic books. Like, not, not just that, creatively speaking, but but like, even if you look at now between the like, sort the of Marvel Comics universe mm-hmm. and stuff, it's like Jack Kirby is as responsible as anybody in the 20th century to what the, the mythic dimensions of American life like, kind of look like. I mean, mm-hmm. this is like one person who essentially created Spider-Man, the Hulk, Captain America, X. You know, it's just, it's incredible. Like, I don't really think he's really been given his due. So I just like to say that, you know, I grew up under the sort of, um, you know, the sort of, elemental influence of Jack Kirby as much as anything, you know? And so when I see things like the Marvel comic universe and how it's evolved and, you know, even to a certain degree, the DC heroes and stuff, uh, I, I just, you know, I didn't grow up reading, like, the myths of, like, Zeus or Hercules or Greek myths or anything. I, I grew mm-hmm. up reading Jack Kirby on no Fantastic Four and Thor. Yeah. And so in some ways, you know, Maybe like for people who have been older than me, it would have been Westerns, you know, that would have like sort of in some ways provided some sort of template to write good and evil and, you know, chaos and order, these kinds of stuff. For me, it was definitely all like, you know, in comic books and particularly in the work of Jack Kirby, because it, it wasn't even just the work that he did in in the 60s that people would be more familiar with. Like I said, Captain America and Spider-Man stuff like that. Like in the early seventies, he left Marvel Comics and went to DC and he had the series, it was called the Fourth World Series, and the, the central book was a book called New Gods. And there was Mr. Miracle and Forever People. Like those things that had a profound impact on just who I am creative with, like for sure. You know, so. That's
0: great. Absolutely. So you were so you were at Howard studying Mm -hmm. architecture so tell us a little bit more about that experience and how how it led you you know out of college into the working working and project world
1: well um architecture was my first love i'd always wanted to be an architect i mean i don't think i ever wavered from since i was like maybe eight or nine years old i wanted to be an architect uh the first creative thing i can remember doing like essentially, I think, as a baby, maybe before I could walk, was messing around with Lincoln Logs and Lego blocks and things like that, you know. And so I think this evolved out of that. I was very, always super interested in structure, space, things like that. Uh, You know, architecture seemed like a good uh, strike. It struck a good balance between being a profession, like a a legitimate profession, But at the same time, you know, definitely allowed me, I thought I envisioned it as, you know, allowed me the space to be an artist at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, When I got to school, I definitely realized how fascinating architecture was. Like I said, as I started to really get into it and like, but increasingly I started to feel like the kinds of things that I was interested in doing, uh, it was hard to see like a path, a path to get there you know because i was interested in like there's like wh- you know some central questions that i've always asked myself since i was a teenager i think and so and the, the ability to articulate that question become more refined but like when i was younger i would have said something like well if like kind of blue like miles davis's record was a house what would it look like or if uh aretha franklin you know record was a house, like what would that look like? So in other words, I was very preoccupied with the idea of like, was it possible to create an artifact, a thing that was gonna be in some ways as powerful an expression of who black people are as black music, mm-hmm. but not music, you know? So, but it increasingly just got to be kind it was hard for me to sort of envision how I was actually going to be able to pull it off in real time. Just in terms of like, you know, I mean, first of all, I sort of grew up around because my, my great grandfather, my grandfather, my uncles were all bricklayers and stuff. So I grew up like working on construction sites in the summer and stuff like that. So it was just hard to sort of envision that folks that I can envision like, I mean, a house that we just don't even have the resources to have you make a quote unquote, experimental house, so to speak, you know? So. <laughs> so increasingly, I just was like, I remember telling my dad, like, the summer of my junior year, after my junior year, I was like, Dad, I don't think I want to do this, you know? And I said, uh, I remember telling him, I said, I think I want, I'd rather be a failed filmmaker than a failed architect. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, and he just was like, well, son, we're going to support you in whatever you want to do, but I can't, you know, I don't, I don't know how to help you with the, arch- with the film thing. He said, I don't know how to help you do that. And I was like, well. Well, let's just see. I just like try to figure it out, but um, so, but it's the same kind of questions that I'm interested in now in my art or in my filmmaking. It's like, you know, kind of blue or electric, Ladyland or Amazing Grace or, you know, Al Green record. Like if those, if you could transpose those aesthetic, there's that word again, transpose those aesthetic values to other mediums. Like what would they look like? I mean, so to me, it was never about. Making, just making good art or a good movie or something like that. I always wanted to make a movie that was not just good, but that a movie was good, but also it reflected in some ways the values of the people, you know, what they thought was beautiful, what they thought was right, what mm-hmm. they thought was correct, uh, to reflect those values in, 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 in that work.
0: This is Sarah Storey, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. welcome back to the mississippi arts hour on mpb think radio i'm sarah story the executive director of the mississippi arts commission today we're joined by arthur jafa the 2021 governor arts award recipient for excellence in media arts so we've been talking with arthur about his experience growing up in mississippi his many influences from films to comic books um, to his time at Howard that led to his career today. So Arthur, I'd love to hear how you got into your first filmmaking art making experiences after after you went to school for architecture.
1: Well, like I was saying earlier, um, I went there to study architecture and uh, you know, uh, saw a lot of really you know uh, incredible things like uh, in DC itself. At some point, I think, it may have been my sophomore year, it may have been my first year, I can't, I'm just trying to remember now. Uh, the East Wing, the East Wing Gallery of the Smithsonian opened um, while I was in school, and one of my architecture professors sent the students, he sent us all down and said, go check out this new East Wing by I.M. I. Pei had designed it. And it had this uh, incredible, like uh, Joseph A. Uh, Calder, a Calder sculpture. In the center, a big red sculpture that was turning in the center. He's like, Go down and check out this building. So I went down, and they happened to have a show, a Mark Rothko show there. And they were like essentially, I don't know, I remember there's been like seven or eight paintings that to my eye at the time just all looked like the same painting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were like maroon paintings that just looked like somebody just put color over the whole thing. But I couldn't get them out of my mind. They, They basically, haunted me for weeks. So I must have gone back to see that show, God, like 10 times, you know? So in some ways, that was, I always mark that as like a moment where the real beginning of me like becoming interested in like art, and, you know, like the whole idea of like contemporary art and these kinds of things. Um, at the same time, DC in the late 70s had a really incredible repertoire theater chain, meaning like it was called the Circle Theater Chain, and they might have had maybe like five or s- maybe six even theaters located all around DC where they showed like rep they had a repertory program, meaning they didn't show new films that were out. They would actually print a schedule, like maybe like it was three months at a time. And on that schedule, they'd have all the films that they were gonna show. So and it was generally a double feature. So it might be like taxi driver and whatever, like, you know, five easy pieces, or then it might be like two Fellaini films. And you could basically, you know, most people would put that schedule on their wall and you could see, like, you know, ahead of time, oh, like next week, I'm going to go see this, this and that. So, and that, like, it's hard to, I think it's hard for people under a certain age to really appreciate what that meant, because at that moment, Like, seeing movies was complicated, because this is prior to, to, uh, like, video, home video. There was no home video. Basically, unless something just showed on the TV randomly, you didn't really have a chance to see a movie that had already been released, you know? Uh, I guess DC had the American Film Institute, so they actually, you know, but most places, like, if you were interested in, like, say... Almost anything, like like if you really say, hey, I'm really interested in seeing like uh, even though this is I, I don't know why this popped my mind, but like P- Apocalypse Now, or if you want to see like a uh, uh, Ingmar Bergman movie, you were just like out of luck. I mean, it was just like maybe if you got really lucky, somebody was screening on television or something like that, but it wasn't really like a real option. So all of a sudden, it was almost like you had access to almost the whole history of cinema like in the course of a year mm. so for the you know four or five years especially the first two or three years i was in um dc a lot of what i did was went to see movies i mean like all every week i went to see movies and it was a combination on one hand of movies like i said that were being shown in repertory contexts and then the other hand you know dc was a big city so like Dawn of the Dead, like I said, Apocalypse Now, anything new that was coming out, actually, you actually also had access to that. So, I mean, I had some of my most incredible, like, experiences, like, <clears throat> on one hand, going to see Abel, Abel Gance's Napoleon at the Biograph Theater in Georgetown. And, you know, that that's like a seven hour long film. So, but I can remember going like one Saturday and sitting there the whole day and watching this movie. Or like I said, I can remember going to see *Don of the Dead. That was like a really incredible experience. At the same time, I became like very, very interested in like avant-garde films. So, you know, American University had a really incredible like uh, avant-garde film courses that were open to the public. So, I mean, the courses weren't, but you could go and see the movies. So I would go and see the movies. I remember seeing like Kenneth Vanger's work, Stan Bracken's work. So I would just basically taking everything in all at once so between the the contemporary art thing and that really amounted at a certain point to a lot of reading just reading a lot about art and stuff and and like I said and just being like completely uh inundated with all this cinema you know my, my first real 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 sort of being immersed in, in foreign films that happened when I was in DC and then in a sense it just sort of evolved from that I never really sort of stopped you know i kind of just to this day i can kind of continue to you know by the time i got out to la because i lived in la in the early 80s like right as i was out of school for a couple of two, maybe three years uh the first job that i got was at the wonderful world of video <laughs> which was <laughs> a video it was a video place it was right next to grandma's chinese theater and again, this was like a moment, this is like, I don't even think there was a Blockbuster. There wasn't Blockbuster. Or maybe Blockbuster was in Arizona, wherever it started, but it wasn't a national chain. But Wonderful World of Video and Tower Video were the two main video stores in LA at that time. And um, and uh, you know, and so you go in and they have all these movies on videotape. And it was it was strange and weird, like the whole idea that you could actually just pop a movie in whenever you wanted to see it. So this is like the transition from like randomly seeing movies to like, like I said, a repertoire situation that existed in DC. And then from that to like, you know, VHS and Betamax. And so I remember working at the video store and uh, I think maybe three days in the manager, as we would close it up one day, just said, hey, you know, because at that time you could rent videos of movies but you also could rent the vcr the player because a lot most people didn't have vcrs in their houses you know Mm. so you could actually rent both the video and the video player you can rent them you know for a day or a week or something so we had some sitting there the man said you know you can take in the uh you can take it home overnight if you want as long as you get it back you know by the time we open in the morning because it's just sitting there and i remember taking home a vcr and taking two movies rumble fish and The Outsiders, and looking at them at home on the television. And I remember just turning to Julie and just saying, this is a revolution. <laughs> this is going to change everything. You know what I mean? Like, you can actually, you know, it was the beginning of Movies on Demand. So uh, it changed people's relationships to films. You know, so, uh, and I just kind of have never sort of looked back since then. It's just been a constant evolution of, like, you know, being able to select the things that you like, not just being completely at the mercy of like what you stumble on, you know, so.
0: That's great. And what what has been your proudest accomplishment of all the projects you've worked on, other artists you've collaborated with? Does one in particular stand out?
1: Uh, No, not really. (laughs) I mean, you know, I've had some really incredible experiences. I mean, Mm -hmm. I shot documentaries for a long time uh, and in many ways, I mean, I certainly have done a few things where I'm actually proud of the thing, I guess. Like Daughters, obviously, would be one, Daughters of the Dust. But, um, but at the end of the day, the most memorable experiences that I've had on a film set, so to speak, have actually been documentaries. I mean, mm-hmm. not necessarily the most challenging as a cinematographer, but the most challenging to do technically, But I've just met some really incredible people. You know, I met Audre Lorde. I got to know Audre Lorde because I shot a documentary. I guess most people would say it's sort of the documentary on Audre Mm -hmm. Lorde. I worked on um, uh, a film on W. B. Du Bois with Louis Messiah, a filmmaker. And in the course of that, met so many incredible people. Met like Amira Baraka, met Talani Davis, met like uh, Tony K. Mambara, you know, so, yeah, documentaries are interesting. I used to tell people, like, what was fascinating to me about documentaries is, like, you would get answers to questions you didn't know to ask. You know what yeah. I mean? Just because you would just meet all these incredible people, like, who you wouldn't have even known or wouldn't have even known to say, hey, I would like to meet that person, you know? I got to know T- Toni Morrison almost directly uh-huh. by virtue of having worked on the documentary and met this person and they introduced me, that kind of thing, you know? So at the end of the day, just in terms of, like, you know, it would be great if there was some direct correlation between uh, it was a good experience working on the thing and it was a good thing, but, you know, unfortunately it's not the case because I worked on things where it was horrible working on them, but the Mm -hmm. film came out really good. And i worked on things where I had a great time, but the film wasn't very good, (laughs) you know what I mean? So, but documentaries I found in general to be like the most sort of, I mean, what's the metric of you? you know, you say like, well, what what are the most memorable things you did? Like, not necessarily come down to the actual film. You know, sometimes Absolutely. it's just about where you were and who you were working with, the conversations you had, maybe completely outside of the scope of what that quote-unquote documentary was about. You know, I traveled to Africa, like, uh, you know, late, like in the late 90s uh, on some documentaries and just had really phenomenally life-transforming experiences. And the project itself was just all right, you know? Right. So. Well,
0: what are you most looking forward to this upcoming year or two
1: with your work? Um, well, I'm going to continue to make my art, but I also started a film company, Sun House, which got funded for three years. So I'm really, first three years. And uh, so I'm really excited about that because it's going to allow me to sort of, um, implement like ideas i have about you know as i said like you know kind of blue was a house if kind of blue was a movie what would it look like uh-huh. you know i feel like after 30 years in this business i'm finally in a position to kind of do what i want to do so i'm really excited about that
0: that's great and you had mentioned to me earlier that you may be returning to mississippi to do a project or two
1: several yes. Yeah, <laughs> i mean we have like I mean, four or five things lined up and three of those initial four or five things are all set in Mississippi, you know, uh, awesome. at different periods without actually going into, like, specifically what they are. But, yeah, mm-hmm. so very much intend to come back and shoot there in and around Mississippi. So.
0: That's exciting. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: Uh, not, not particularly. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> You know, um, I don't know, just I mean, I know for a lot of people now there's a real struggle just with COVID. And and I know, you know, um, you know, this past elections was very tumultuous and, you know, everything's that's happening, the Capitol and this kind of stuff. But I don't know, like I am, despite all of that, pretty optimistic about the future. You know, I feel like a lot of these uh, A lot of the chaos now is because we're in a moment of fundamental change. And Mm -hmm. and that's always the case when things are changing. Things get a little chaotic for a second before they settle down. You know, it's uh, 2021 now. I think the beginning of the 21st century is really just starting now. Mm -hmm. The first 20 years is like getting out of the 20th century, getting out of the previous century. (laughs) You know, gearing up and now 2021, I think it was like 1921. That's when you really got to see what the 20th century was going to look like. So I think 2021 is when we're going to finally see what the 21st century is going to look like.
0: That's great perspective. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. This is Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m.
1: If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, You can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org.